0: Well, welcome. Welcome to Trinity. My name is Jonathan. We're calling this House Church. If you're part of the Trinity community, a special welcome to you. We miss seeing you regularly. Uh, while we're separated, this has been a unique thing, a unique season, and a weird moment. And, but we're excited to be able to be joining together Virtually, and if you're listening on podcasts, welcome to you. It's never been easier to explore Christianity, and maybe that's where you are. Maybe a friend has invited you to consider being a part of Trinity service or another church service. It's never been easier to explore from home and learn about the heartbeat of Christianity. And so, if you're on the outside of Christianity looking in, a special welcome to you. Uh, this is a season of asking questions, of, of asking uh, what's at the heart of reality. Uh, Who am I? What's going on in our world? Where does God fit into all this? We're a church that's built on the backbone of the gospel, but it's also built on the backbone of honesty and questions. And so we're glad that you can be here if that's you, whether you've been following Jesus for a long time and you've got questions or you're somebody who's just learning about Christianity and wants to lean in and find more. Welcome to each of you. Uh, Today, we're going to do something a little bit different with House Church. Usually, I come and I preach for somewhere around 20, 25 minutes. Some would say a little bit longer, but uh, today, we're going to break it into a couple of pieces. Uh, I was able to hop on with a friend of mine. Her name is Susie Fixie. Many of you know Susie. She's a member of Trinity, but she also leads an organization called Hope for San Diego. Hope for San Diego has a big heart for people on the margins in our city. So I was able to sit down with Susie in an interview format for part of the teaching today, which is going to come from Matthew chapter 6, a really cool section, a challenging section where Jesus talks about people who are followers, people who are His followers living differently, loving differently, and engaging differently with people who are on the margins, people who are considered poor, and uh, people who need a lot of love. And so we want to learn to engage wisely, carefully, thoughtfully, and intentionally. And so part of today's service is going to be that interview with Susie. After the interview, I'm going to come back up, tie some things together, and wrap it up. So let me read from Matthew chapter 6, the first four verses today. Then we'll go to the interview, and then we'll be back together. Here's what Jesus says, Matthew 6, verse 1. He writes, Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. All right, it's my privilege and my joy to introduce to you Susie Fixie. She is the Executive Director of Hope for San Diego. She's a close friend of me and my family. Uh, Many of you know the Fixie family. And Susie's gonna be coming today to just to have a conversation with me because she's way smarter than me, um, because she's really thoughtful and um, because every time I have a conversation with her, I leave feeling encouraged and challenged and also that she's a fellow traveler. Uh, One of the neat things that I've asked her to do today is kind of approach this interview and this conversation, not just with the executive director hat that she wears with Hope for San Diego, but just as somebody who is learning to follow Jesus is figuring out what it means to adopt his way of life in the world. And it's not an easy thing to adopt. And so we come at this humbly. We come at this with a desire uh, to, to encourage and to edify the church and to listen to one another. So number one, to Susie, thank you for joining us as we jump into this conversation around Jesus and what he has to say to us in the Sermon on the Mount. This is fun for me because I get to put somebody else in the hot seat. So <laughs> all right, Susie, I got some questions for you. All right. All right. All right. First question is this. We read from Matthew chapter 6. And Jesus seems to assume engagement with the poor and the needy within our communities. He assumes the engagement. In Matthew 6, Jesus says, when you give to the needy, not if you give to the needy. Mm -hmm. He assumes that his followers are like entrenched in this diverse community where needs are known and where followers of Jesus respond with action and with kindness and in acts of service towards the poor. So I'd love for you to run with that idea. What comes to mind for you when you hear Jesus instruct his followers when you give to the needy, especially as it relates to those of us who live in a very distinct part of San Diego called North County. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, I, I think about how we often see it as optional, right? Something that we can do or not do, depending on our choice. And I think in that time, um, the, the people could not avoid the poor they pass the, the homeless man on the way to the city. They, they encountered a beggar or a blind person or whatever. Um, when we live in North County, it's much easier to avoid the just the, the daily experience of encountering people who are very materially different than us. Um, and, you know, I think it can be very kind of out of sight, out of mind and, when you think about most of the world living on less than $2 a day, and yet I want my Starbucks green tea every day that costs more than that, you know, it just, it shows you the different world that we live in. And yes. and then in that time period too, there was no alternative to people being generous. Right. Um, there wasn't unemployment, there wasn't health insurance, all those things. So if people were going to be cared for, it was because somebody was generously, giving and serving them.
0: Mm. Follow-up question from that. I mean, how do we bridge the gap between ourselves and the poor? How can we get to know them and in a way that their needs actually become our needs? I mean, at times we're not sure what a next step looks like, but most of the people around us live similarly to us, they look similar to us, they have a similar education level as us, maybe they live comfortable, middle to upper class suburban lifestyles, Mm -hmm. just like us. So how do we bridge the gap between ourselves and a different community, in this case, the poor? Mm -hmm.
1: Yeah, and that's really the reason Hope for San Diego exists is to try to connect us and our lives with those who are poor and marginalized. And, And you know, honestly, we have a lot to learn from them you know, it's not just, oh, we want to go give, but but we need them too in our lives. And so how do we do how do we bridge the gap? Because it's not easy. And I think it goes back to what you preached about last week, just expanding our circle of geography, of comfort, of of just the ways of relationships, you know, engaging with people who are different from us. And I think it looks different for everybody, but it's, it's always a little bit uncomfortable when you're stretching yourself. And it doesn't mean that everybody has to go move to city heights. You know, it, maybe it just starts with, I'm gonna learn a little bit more about trafficking in our city. Um, I'm going to talk to that homeless man that I encounter every day on the way to work Um, I'm going to go have dinner with a family who's fostering children to learn more about what that's like. So, um, you know, Hope for San Diego tries to provide some of those avenues, but it also requires us to be willing to take a step to step out of our comfort zone to expand our us a little bit.
0: Yeah, yeah. So talk to me a little bit about those two themes. I heard you mention a little bit about like education and awareness. And then there's kind of the reality side of it, which is some of us are uncomfortable and there's some fear in stepping into the unknown. There's, there's urban legends around communities and poverty and the poor and why they're poor. And, you know, getting to know an individual and having a conversation with them is very different than reading a statistic. And a lot of times when we live a comfortable life where a lot of the people around us of nece- not necessarily any fault of our own look like us, they think like us, they're like us but but what you're saying is that in some ways it's not enough right We have to be have to be educated, we have to be aware. So it sounds like education is part of it. Maybe you could talk a little bit about education even in our city and um, how do we become aware of needs and and then what does crossing some of those barriers that maybe something like fear presents to us?
1: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, just a small little question. Um, (laughs) How long do we have? Um, Yeah, I think education is is a big piece because it can really open your eyes. Really, when I started this journey, a lot of it was learning about trafficking and the huge problem that it was in our country. You know, I thought it was something that happened overseas. And I learned the hundreds of thousands of women right here who are being affected. And that just sparked something in me that said, I have to do something, you know, mm-hmm. and uh, those first steps were not huge steps. It was reading a book, it was going to a, a seminar or a conference, you know, just taking baby steps. And then God continued to stir in me more and more, you know? And I think that's the same way we overcome our fear is taking those small steps. Um, If you've never met a refugee, you know, hear somebody's story, go to a dinner where a refugee is sharing, you know, some of us have been to a dinner where a a guy shared the story of being tortured in a Syrian prison. you know, and hearing that personal story can totally change your perspective on refugees and what you've read in the news, seeing it up close and personal. And so, you know, I think hearing personal stories is a huge factor, but it also doesn't happen overnight. You know, I walk into my office often past homeless men sleeping on the sidewalk. That would have scared me 10 years ago. Mm -hmm. And i I would not have wanted to even be, have an office here, you know, and so I think it's not, doesn't happen like that. And those fears, you know, some of them come from really legitimate places. And so I think it can take time and we need to give ourselves patience and, and, and just take that next step.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Part of, I think, the journey in this that you're describing is that it's okay to understand um, that we do carry some limitations, we carry some fears, some of them legitimate, some of them need to be overcome with with better education about the needs around us and about certain communities, but it's okay to recognize that we are becoming like Jesus.
1: Mm We are not
0: Jesus yet. We don't love with the intentionality that he loves and we're in process and we're becoming Right, And I think uh, becoming the sort of people who um, want to live into the pattern that Jesus lays down, for example, in the Sermon on the Mount, is such an important conversation and it's ongoing. It's life. It is the Christian life. And so I, I think you're giving us permission to be in process and to be learning, but to be intentional and to not get bent out of shape if we're not there yet Right, as we step into this journey. I want to ask you a little bit about motive for serving. Jesus talks a lot about motivations for behaviors in his uh, Sermon on the Mount. And of course, in chapter six, he's really unpacking why people love and give and serve those in need. And so we've got lots of different motives, some of them good, some of them not so good, some of them natural and not so natural. And it seems like what Jesus is describing is a, is a reflex he talks about not letting your your left hand know what your right hand is doing. It's it's as if you're driving like from work to home. You don't know how you got there. You don't remember the drive, but, you know, your hands just kind of steered the wheel and you didn't have to instruct anything. It just was reflexive. It was natural. So maybe the question is how do we become the sort of people where giving and serving, especially the poor around us is reflexive. It's natural. Mm -hmm. Thoughts on that?
1: Yeah, it it doesn't happen naturally, right? It's, it's contrary to our kind of selfish nature as people. And I don't want to give up my agenda. I don't want to have other people's problems inconvenience me. Um, And, you know, no amount of fear or guilt or sense of obligation is going to really inherently change me to the, to the extent that I want to I want to, I, it's a reflex to serve others, to forsake myself, put others ahead of me. Uh, It's only the gospel that can do that. And it's a deep sense of my own desperate need for the love of Jesus, the grace of Jesus, the extravagant love of my heavenly father. Um, the, the, The extent to which I recognize my poverty of spirit, I will be able to identify with the, the, the materially poor. You know, they may be they may be poor uh, economically, but they may have a richer spirit than I do. Um, I think often we can be middle class in spirit and think, oh, I've, I can add something, or I bring something to the table. And often the poor know that they don't bring anything to the table. And mm. so have this kind of dependence on the Lord that we can really learn from.
0: Mm. I'm going to put you on the spot and ask you a personal question about that because it's so important. I mean, and at the end of the day, Christianity, while it's communal, it is personal. And I heard you talk a little bit about um, having your eyes of your heart awoken and awakened to the, the idea of poverty of spirit, mm-hmm. that there's a shared humanity between all of us. Like Jesus came in and he, he did something to you. And it probably wasn't a one-time, one-hit wonder. It was this consistent thing where Jesus has been just awakening you to your need, to your sin, but also then he's, he awakens you to something new. And I'm wondering if, if you could just share a moment of that, like how, how God's been awakening your spirit over the years to, to his way of life, to his pattern for loving. What, what has that looked like for you?
1: Yeah, I, thank God he is in the business of changing us. Because I think if you, if anybody would have guessed 25 years ago that I would be doing what I'm doing now, they would have laughed in your face. Uh, I think I was one of the least merciful people out there, and you know, God just changed that through through you know a lot of different experiences and 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 people. But I think it was really understanding, seeing my brokenness in a new light, seeing my sin, seeing the ways in which I, I was just desperately in need of rescue. And this isn't like when I came to know the Lord, it, it was later in life when I had my eyes open to the fact that, you know, my personal piety uh, was not the source of any uh, salvation or any earned favor with God. And that really it was my brokenness that God most wanted to use. And, and then kind of seeing in scripture, the places where God used those broken people, where God used uh, the poor, the, the the downtrodden, you know, and I could see scripture from that angle instead of from kind of the powerful and and how do you read scripture at, through the eyes of the oppressed person? And it, it looks very different. And I think you can then identify see how god identifies with those people and made himself one of those people jesus was homeless he was a refugee he was poor and so gosh he aligns himself with those people not the rich not the powerful and so it kind of just gives you a different angle um on on your life on what's important on on what the gospel really means
0: yeah yeah, thank you. I mean, what that feels like to me is that we serve a God who who doesn't just preach sermons, as I said last week, but he becomes them. He mm-hmm. lives them out. I mean, it's one thing for him to serve the poor. It's another thing for the Savior, the center of Christianity to say, I've become poor. Mm-hmm. You know, you are one of me. I am with you. And what affiliation, like what connection. And when that starts to to penetrate the human heart, when that starts to change us, when we see that story, when we see ourselves kind of locked in arms with Jesus and he's dusty and he's dirty and he's stinky and he goes, this is for you. It starts to change us, doesn't it? One day at a time, one moment at a time, and it gives us a new way of thinking about life. Susie, thank you so much for jumping in on this conversation with us. We're leaving uh, better, we're leaving having thought more carefully about the poor and about how to engage in but also just the honest side of it, that it's a work in progress. So thank you for being gracious with us and sharing what, uh, part of your story.
1: Absolutely, thanks for having me. You got it.
0: Now remember that the Sermon on the Mount is intended to be a picture of life under the reign and the rule of Jesus. Jesus is showing people who are curious about him, who are curious about what he has to say, curious what he has to teach, what it will look like to actually follow his lead and to then follow his lead into a new way of living, a new way of thinking, a new way of loving, a new way of acting, a new citizenship, now, the reality is that if you've looked at or followed or tracked along with us thus far in this series, Jesus is painting a picture of a radically different way of life. You might read the Sermon on the Mount from Matthew 5, 6, and 7, kind of be overwhelmed by it. there's no way I could live like that. Again, that is Jesus's point. This is not the natural way that people live. People don't want to give to people who are different. They want to engage with people who look like them, who think like them, We want to live life with people who make us comfortable. We don't want to step out of comfort zones in order to give and to serve naturally. And that's why Jesus is saying, with me as the king, if you put me at the center of your life, if I begin to change and transform and unlock your affections, you're going to become more human. You're going to live differently than you've ever lived before. And we get a picture of what that looks like here in Matthew chapter 6. So let me read again the text uh, from those first four verses. I'm going to go through 12 points today. Just kidding. I'm going to keep it at three. But let me read from Matthew 6, those first four verses. All right, here we go. Jesus says, Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who's in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be in secret. And your Father who sees in secret, He will reward you. I'm going to take you through three things real quick. Number one, we're going to look at this concept of a warning that Jesus gives about giving. Number two, we're going to look at the sign of a transformed giver. And then thirdly, the reward for giving the way that Jesus wants you to. So a warning. Number two, the sign of a transformed giver. And number three, the reward that Jesus talks about, forgiving the way that He wants us to. So the first part is this unique warning about giving. You notice there in verse one that Jesus says, "'Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward for your, from your Father who is in heaven.'" Jesus seems to understand how easy it is to manipulate something that is good and true and honest and beautiful. He goes, you know, you could take that thing and you can twist it so easily into something that's different. You can turn it into something other than it's intended to be. Now, remember, Jesus assumes that mercy is already going to be a part of the lifestyle and the rhythms of people who are followers of him. This is not if you serve and give to the needy. This is when you give and serve the needy. Serving the poor isn't an elective that we're given the right to opt in or opt out of. It's this essential part of a Christian's faith. And it's as as natural and essential and as important as eating or breathing. It's just so natural. It's reflexive. But Jesus also knows how natural it is to manipulate something like giving. He understands the temptation to turn something like an act of mercy into an act of vanity. See, the word picture that Jesus paints for us gets to the heart of the warning. What he essentially says is there's all these really religious people who are doing really religious things, and they're going about in their religious ways, And Jesus has something to say to them. So if you're on the outside of Christianity, notice that Jesus generally addresses religious people more than he does irreligious people. These are these people who love to let people know about their religious habits and their religious routines. So what he does is he paints a picture. He says, imagine somebody who's coming into a poor neighborhood. They've got an entourage. They've got people with them. They've got people playing trumpets. They've got a big brass band. They've got people way out front. They're playing their music. They're announcing the fact that this individual, who of course, seems to have more resources and more money than the people he's coming to serve or the people who are watching. He says, notice them coming into the neighborhood. Notice the pomp. Notice the noise. Notice the focus of attention. Now, if you confronted that person, Jesus essentially is saying, they probably say, you know what? We're just trying to let the poor know that we're coming in to help them. But Jesus knows different. You know different. And I know different. These individuals are coming with all of the noise, the big brass band, because they want people to look at them and notice the love and notice the giving and notice the serving. Jesus knows the difference between self-interest and genuine interest for other people. One is about helping others to get ahead, and the other is actually about helping yourself get ahead. And see, Christianity, as you notice, is not about externals. It's so much more than a collection of behaviors. If Jesus was just concerned, or if Christianity was just concerned with external behaviors, then Jesus would have nothing to say. He wouldn't offer a critique at all. He'd simply look at an individual and go, oh, at least the behavior's getting done. At least they're helping the poor. And he wouldn't stop and say, man, you brought the big brass band. You're bringing all the attention to yourself. You've gone out to serve in order to get the praise of your peers. Jesus stops and he goes, that's what really matters. It's not just about the externals. It's not just about the behavior. Jesus, Jesus doesn't go, check, done, serve the poor. He goes, why'd you do it? See, he gives a unique warning about why serving and why loving? It's an important part of Christianity. Jesus is consistently getting through to the heart and to the motive. He wants to see people serving from a changed life and from a changed heart. So that's part one, this warning about giving. So let's look at part two, which is the sign of a transformed giver. Look at verse two with me. Jesus says, "'Thus when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets.'" that they may be praised by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be in secret. See, Jesus is really painting two pictures. He's contrasting two different scenarios. On the one hand, you've got an individual who likes the attention. He is doing it for the attention, for the praise, for the recognition of the people around him, the community around them. Jesus goes in verse 2 and he calls that individual, he uses a specific word and it's a tough word. He says, that's a hypocrite. Now, Jesus was the first one to introduce the word hypocrite really into common language, and he uses it differently because in his context, a hypocrite was an actor, a professional actor, somebody who's on stage. They're literally being paid to deceive, to show you a different emotion so that at the end, after they've been on stage, after they presented something to you, manipulated your heart, twisted things around professionally, you would stand and give them applause and you clap for them. See, a hypocrite was an actor, and Jesus takes that out of the the acting world, out of the play world, out of the playwright's language, and he puts it into the language of normal life, and he goes, the individual who's standing on the street corner serving the other people so that people look at them and wonder who they are, he goes, they are acting. They're standing on the stage of life. You're just a player in their play, and they are waiting for the end of the performance so that you will stand up and you'll give them an applause. That's one sign, right? That's one thing that Jesus is contrasting. The other thing that he contrasts it with is a very different picture that's not as much public as it is private. Look at verse three. In verse three, Jesus says, but when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be in secret. See, here Jesus is describing someone who's giving to the poor. And as a right-handed person, we live in a right-handed world now. As a right-handed person then, you generally would give, their, give your alms, you'd give your money, you'd give the food, you'd give the clothing, you'd give whatever you had with your right hand. And see, what Jesus is emphasizing in that kind of unique sentence and in that unique description, he's emphasizing somebody who's been giving with the right hand, and he goes, don't even tell your left hand what you're doing. He's emphasizing the idea of self-forgetfulness. So yeah, on the one hand, he goes, man, don't announce it to the world. You don't need a plaque. You don't need a trophy. You don't need people's attention. You don't need the gaze of your peers. You don't need people to know what you've done. You don't need to write it in the stars or write it on social media or in any other place. You don't need that stuff. Don't announce it to the world. Ironically, When you do this, you have manipulated a real need, somebody's real need. They really need help. They really need food. They really need shelter. They really need companionship. They really need a conversation. You have manipulated somebody's real need into an ego boost for yourself. See, and ironically, you've made somebody else's poverty about your own poverty, and you can't even see it. You have made their need about your need, your ego need. The need of your heart, the need going on inside of your soul. Jesus says, don't announce your generosity to the world. But notice, he also says, don't even mention it. Don't announce it to yourself. Don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. Don't congratulate yourself. Don't get consumed with your own greatness. Don't get preoccupied by imagining how kind you are. What he says is, "Just move on, serve in secret." See the difference? One is public and it's about you. One is private, and it's secret, as Jesus says, and is truly about other people. He says, "Give without pomp, give without recognition from the world." or even from yourself. He says, that is a sure sign of a heart whose identity is being shifted. You're starting to live from a new motivation center. Yeah, this is an impossible thing, Jesus says, but with me as the king, this can start to become your reality. That is the sign of a transformed giver. I don't care who's watching. I don't need anybody's recognition. I don't need anybody to write my name down and give me praise. I'm starting to give simply in secret. Because my heart's being changed and it's being filled up by something else. So let me take you to the last part. We've got the warning about giving, the sign of a transformed giver, and then this reward that comes at the end of the story, the reward for giving the way that Jesus wants you to. Glance at verse 3. Jesus says, But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Now, let's be honest about this. When you give to those in need, when you serve the poor, when you choose to give like that, one of the predictable results is that you are gonna have less than you had before you started to engage, serve, and give. Does that make sense? I haven't done math in a long time, but if you've got a certain amount of money, you've got a certain amount of time, you've got a certain amount of resources, and you start to give that away, even in small amounts, by the end of that sort of lifestyle, by the end of that sort of day, you're gonna have less, than you had before. So there's a cost to it. There's a cost to giving, but Jesus says that there's also a reward. And he says, one of the results of this way of living is what I want to call a pruning. It's an opening of the eyes. It's an opening of the heart that when you start to give time away, money away, resources away, you actually stop and realize I didn't need him in the first place. I built a whole life around accumulating these things, these gadgets, this amount of money, and I start to give it away, and my eyes and my heart start to be open to the fact that money was never the source of my identity. My job was never the source of my identity. A nice home and a great neighborhood is never the source of my identity. I can serve and give and and be somebody who's generous. I can be that sort of person who gives away, and I'm actually better for it. I'm actually happier because of it. Now I'm starting to see my eyes are being opened. There's a pruning, there's a natural pruning that happens when you give stuff away. You start to see, it was never my identity anyway. And there's this amazing reward that comes into the human heart when you start to see that. But there's even more. Here's what John Stott writes. He says, what then is a reward for which the Heavenly Father gives the secret giver? It is probably the only reward which genuine love wants when making a gift to the needy, namely to see the need relieved. When through his gifts, the hungry are fed, the naked clothed, the sick healed, the oppressed freed, and the lost saved, the love which prompted the gift is satisfied. Such love brings with it its own secret joys and desires no other reward. In other words, Jesus is saying the great reward that you receive when you love, when you serve, when you give is none other than the joy that comes from the act of love itself. The joy is when you see needs met, when you see uh, somebody's need being satisfied, when you see it and you relieve it, there is tremendous joy that wells up in the human heart. And Jesus says, man, this is a great reward because what you are starting to do is you are starting to live and love like Jesus. You're starting to give yourself away. You've got resources and you meet needs. You've got emotional capital and you invest in other people. You've got financial things to be able to provide and to be able to give and you do so and it changes your heart. It changes their circumstances and you come to life because love like that, real love, is costly and real love looks like Jesus. Let me wrap up with this this idea. In Acts Chapter 4, 33 and 34, those two verses. If you want to go back and look, go back and read them. We read, Great grace was upon them all. This is a picture of the early church. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Think about that idea. In the early church, there was no needy person among them. It's like the atmosphere, the air that they breathed was generosity. They saw a need, they met it. If it was emotional, they met it. If it was financial, they met it. If it was communal, they met it. They met needs so that the description of the early church was, there was no needy person among them. I want to be a church like that. And I want to lead a church like that. I want that to become our MO. I want that to become a gospel overflow. I want it to become the result of grace. When you see the way Jesus loves and gives and serves, he's starting to change your life. It's just going to happen. We are going to love and serve each other. We're going to see transformation. People's lives are going to be radically upended for the good, and there will be no needy person amongst us. Now, let's live towards that. Let's lean into that. Let's ask the Holy Spirit to help us become people like that. You want to? I want to. Let's go in that direction together. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for the picture that you paint. It's a tough one. It challenges us. It's provocative. It makes us think about what we have and do not have. It makes me think about money and possessions and time it makes me think about communities that are different than me. It also shows us what type of king you are. You're a king who became poor. You're a king who got down in the dust and in the dirt. You didn't have fancy clothes. You didn't live in a beautiful palace. You were homeless. The son of man had no place to lay his head. Foxes have holes, but you have places to sleep, but you didn't. What kind of king were you? And maybe the more important question is, what type of king are you still today? You're the king for the poor. You're the king who became poor so that we might become rich. And so I pray that the poverty of spirit that we carry would be matched and then outdone by the grace that you give. We pray we'd see Jesus love us and that would overflow into the way in which we love others. We pray in Jesus' generous name. Amen.